We are uh, in the, Ma- uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, this, this winter and spring as we make our way toward Easter. And if you can remember, a couple weeks back, we moved into chapter 5. We moved into Matthew's presentation of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the Beatitudes, the, the blessings that inaugurate the kingdom Jesus proclaims. We talked about how, in many ways, those Beatitudes first address our emptiness, right? Those who are poor in spirit, those who are, are hungry, those who, who, who come to God looking for help and to be filled up and ministered to. But then we talked about how, as we move through those Beatitudes, there is a, a filling up, right? Blessed, blessed are those who are full of mercy, for they will, will be shown mercy by God, right? Blessed are those who make peace on the earth. There's this movement from, from the emptiness that, that we have and, and the need that we have to the, the fullness of the kingdom Jesus desires to bring in those Beatitudes. Today we're going to move on to the, the remainder of chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And there Jesus wants us to consider what our relationship is to the law of God. How do we live in relationship to that? How did Jesus see his own relationship to the law? And getting our our heads and our lives kind of wrapped around what what the law represents can be challenging. I don't think we we actually spend a lot of time thinking about the law. I don't know how many of you woke up this morning and gave careful careful consideration to which laws you were going to keep and which laws you were going to break today. And anybody have that early morning deliberation with their cup of coffee? Probably not. Right? Unless you're a lawyer or maybe a member of Congress. Right? Laws are something that kind of operate mostly in the background of our lives. There are tens of thousands of, of uh, laws in the U.S. criminal code. And most of us actually keep the, the overwhelming majority of those laws without ever thinking about it, right? We're, we're culturally conditioned to keep them, or there are certain pressures or, or ways that our culture is configured so that those laws kind of operate smoothly in the background. All right, most of you sitting here this morning are law-abiding citizens, and that's a, that's a good thing. There's a lot of goodness that comes from that. But we also know that, that in a nation of law-abiding citizens, there are still plenty of problems. Right? Even when we keep the law, there are plenty of inequities. There are plenty of grudges. There are plenty of bad decisions that all of us share responsibility for. And so while obeying the law is a good start, there's goodness that comes from that, the law itself is hardly enough to deliver us into the kind of kingdom kind of world that we long to live in, the kind of kingdom that Jesus describes here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so the law has goodness in it, but the law also has limits, limits to it. In the book of Exodus, right, God gave his people the law, gave his law through the prophet Moses. And that law was a great blessing to the people of Israel. 
right? What, what we receive in the Ten Commandments guards and, and shapes and, and holds up what it means to be a human being made in God's image, what it means to be in relationship with God, how to protect the relationships we have with one another. But again, we see that the law itself, if we look through the history of God's people, wasn't enough to deliver the fullness of his kingdom's rule and reign on the earth. That law had limits. One of the the great European film directors, Krzysztof Kieślowski, who was a Polish man, explored this idea of of the limits of the law in a series of films he made back in the 1980s. They're called the Decalogue. And if you've you've seen any of these, they're considered a cinematic masterpiece. They're on many critics, you know, top 10 or top 25 list of of all-time works of film. The Decalogue, uh, it's simply a Latin phrase that means the Ten Commands, right? It's, It's how the Catholic Church refers to the Ten Commandments. But in these ten films, they're all set in the same apartment block in Poland. They feature different people living in that apartment block as they try to navigate everyday life. And in each film, one of the characters faces some kind of moral or ethical crisis that actually sort of precipitates one of the commands. And I think the point of the series is to highlight how challenging it is to live out the wisdom, the gift of these commandments when we're faced with real idols, real temptations, real pressures, real choices in our modern world. To live well, we need to to know more than just the rules or the commands. We need insight. We need courage. We need help to actually pursue what goodness and truth and love ultimately require of us. So if there's goodness to the law, but we have trouble living it out to its fullness, and even the law itself has trouble delivering the fullness of what God desires for us, what what do we do? Where can we go for what's needed? I think one of the great treasures Jesus has given us is this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up onto this mountainside, and as we said two weeks ago, Matthew, as he presents this sermon to us, wants us to see and wants us to to understand that in what Jesus is doing, in the way he's presenting himself, that someone even greater than Moses, something even greater than those Ten Commandments God gave to his people on Sinai, has come. But what Jesus offers to us in this message is not just an update or an expansion. It's not version 2.0 of the Ten Commandments. What Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus is about the fulfillment of these things. Actually, Matthew is on about that again and again. We've already talked about Jesus filling up, Jesus fulfilling all of human history, all of of the story of Israel, from the moment of his birth to the moment of his baptism, to the proclamation of the gospel, to his treatment of the law here, right? Jesus is about fulfillment. He is fulfillment. 
So this morning, let me read to you from Matthew 5. I'm going to start in verse 17 and go all the way through to the end of chapter 5. There's, there's quite a bit of teaching here. And after we read through that together, then I'll come back and we'll try to live into and, and receive what Jesus' teaching is about here together. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew 5. And find your way to verse 17. Sam, can you move these slides along as, as we get through them? That way I don't have to, to keep grabbing the clicker. Thank you. This is what Jesus says. Again, he's already blessed the people. He's announced the, the blessing of his kingdom, the rule and reign of his kingdom. He's described how the people are going to be the salt and light that renews the culture and the face of the earth. And then he, he brings this teaching, verse 17. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, fills up to an even greater degree, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift, your gift, at the altar... And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. 
But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one of your hairs white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray as we try to understand and receive all that Jesus says there. Lord, there is a weightiness to your word to us. There is a calling into a kind of righteousness that we confess challenges us. We struggle to even know where to begin, how to to keep this teaching. But Lord, we, we look to you and we believe that you have brought this as good news to us. And so may the words of my mouth as I teach now, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. May we be moved to the fulfillment of these things. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. It's pretty clear in the way Jesus presents his teaching himself as he interprets the law that he is exercising great boldness. Anyone who heard Jesus handle the law of Moses in this way would have been taken aback. To say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, places Jesus in a whole different category than any other teacher that's come before him. And so as we try to understand what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is about, Right away here in verse 17, I think Jesus says something important. He explains his relationship to the law of God. And he says pretty clearly he hasn't come to revise the legal code. He hasn't come to replace it. Jesus says his mission is to fulfill these things that have come before. To fill 
them up, to bring them into their fullest expression. What does Jesus mean? If the law, according to Jesus, doesn't need an amendment, it doesn't need an expansion, but rather needs fulfillment, I think what Jesus is saying is, is we need to find a way to embody what the law is trying to do but can't quite accomplish. We need a way to become the kind of people for whom the kingdom of heaven is advancing, is arriving, is being prepared. How do we become people that live in a way that's, that's coherent, that fits with what Jesus has come to bring us into? And so in what follows, in the remainder of Jesus' teaching in chapter 5, Jesus takes a number of the old laws, so to speak. Right? Things from the prophets, things from the teaching of Moses. But Jesus' aim is not to deconstruct what's taught there. It's not to set it aside as something that's no longer relevant. Instead, he insists that his purpose is to fill these things up, to bring fulfillment to them. And so I think what Jesus gives us here is, is like the heartbeat of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants to help us find a way to move beyond being mere rule keepers or law keepers and toward the place of, of being citizens in the kingdom of heaven, ambassadors of that kingdom on the earth. And so I want to go through these six commands that he picks up and then his, his fulfillment of them and think briefly about what, what Jesus is, is doing with each one. Look first at verse 21. Jesus says, You heard it said long ago that you shall not murder. Right? Jesus is picking up one of the Ten Commandments, and he starts in a place that probably most of us can feel pretty good about. If, if the law of God is simply about following it to the letter of the law, very few of us have taken by force the life of another human being. And so we could check that box off and, and move on with the law. Until we reach verse 22, where Jesus says, You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, anytime you have despised or, or dismissed another human being made in God's image, you do so subject to the judgment of God. Because you have left the intent, you have left the purpose of God's law empty, unfulfilled. Right? The purpose is that God the creator desires, desires to, to guard diligently the dignity, the image, the worth of every person he has created and loved. And so we, we might not take their life away, but we do other things to diminish and to destroy that which God loves. And so if, if the law were just about ticking those boxes, Jesus says, actually, we need an eraser. Jesus goes on to say that he knows even the most religious among us are skilled at coming into places and times of worship. Right? 
thinking that we're, we're there to please and honor God and, and his desires for us. And yet we come carrying, we come armed with unresolved grudges and hatred and conflict with our brothers and sisters into those same places of worship. And so Jesus says, if we want to fill up this law, if we want to be kingdom people, that those two things can't go together. Even if you've kept the command not to murder, we need to go further. And what I think he describes is that we need to be filled up with reconciling peace. Remember, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who make peace. He says, I'm way more interested in, in your generosity of love and relationship and reconciliation toward a brother or sister than I am your generosity in the offering plate. He says, in this kingdom, right relationships, dignifying one another, is what needs filling up and keeping. Not the temple with your gifts. And in fact, some interpreters would say, Jesus is, is so committed to this. He says, if you're on your way to the temple, right? He's speaking to Galileans, mostly. If you're on your way four or five days journey to Jerusalem, and you realize on the way that you have this gift to present at the temple, but there's someone you're not reconciled with. Go home. Walk three or four days in the opposite direction. Settle things and then come back to the temple. That's how important reconciliation is. That's how important peacemaking is in the kingdom of Jesus. So there's a filling up that Jesus desires for us. Verse 27, Jesus picks up another of the Ten Commandments. And he says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here Jesus is, is thinking not just of any human relationship, but of a specific human relationship, right? One of marriage. One of, of being in covenant partnership with another human being. But here Jesus does not restrict this command to to only sort of the, the letter of the law, right? The, the letter of the law, according to, to anyone in first century Judaism, was that adultery meant being in, in sexual relationship with someone who is not also your marriage partner. Whether that was before marriage or outside of marriage, right? That was the definition of adultery. But Jesus wants, I think, to speak specifically to those who might feel they've already kept the letter of that law outwardly. But he wants them to attend to the matters of their own heart. Where lust or litigiousness can empty out the purpose and meaning of that law. Jesus wants us to be more than simply not adulterers. And Jesus is radical here. I think he's radical in the first century. I think he's even more radical in the 21st century in his exhortation that, that we don't permit ourselves space to, to flirt with lust, to put images before our eyes, to imagine a partner other than the one God has put us in covenant relationship with when it comes to sexual expression. 
He's guarding the beauty and the fidelity of those things. And he goes on and he says, nor is the fullness of the kingdom of God to be found in, in securing legal permissions to leave one partner and find a new one as a matter of convenience. It's my own belief and understanding that there are times and, 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 and instances where, where marriages are so broken or so abusive or things are taking place that the heart of God would not, would not ask someone to stay and, and receive that kind of destruction and abuse. Well, what I think Jesus is on about here and his desire to lift these things up in his kingdom is that we would be people filled with purity of heart. That's what Jesus is on about here. That we would be people who renew and who reinvest our intimate relationships with fidelity, trust, and steadfast love. Right? We wouldn't be people who manipulate the letter of the law to get what we want. But we would be people who seek to embody the filling, the fulfilling of these things in our relationships. As Jesus' sermon continues, that ethic appears again and again. Right? You've heard it said. You know what the baseline of the law expects or asks or requires of you. But I say to you, there is a deeper, there is a better, there is a fulfilling way to live in the kingdom I bring. To follow Jesus into that way of life. There is a different way to be people of the kingdom. And so in verse 33, right, we see that pattern again. You've heard it said, do not break your oath. Don't say one thing and then do another. One, one of the common practices in the ancient world was to take an oath when you were entering into a contract or into an agreement, a relational agreement of some kind. And an oath was a way to kind of curry relational favor through using particular kinds of speech. Usually it was by whether the pagans imploring the, the, the gods to bless or, or to observe this promise. Or in the case of Judaism, they wouldn't use the name of God in an oath, but they would swear by things like the temple as God's dwelling place or the heavens as witnesses to a particular promise they were making or a contract. And the idea was, right, if I don't keep my word, then, then I might be cursed by these things. I think the promise with oath-taking or promise-making in this particular way is it's appealing to something outside of ourselves so that, that we'll be loaned credibility in that situation. Right? That's, so someone will believe us to a greater degree than they would already believe us at the outset. It's a way to use words to, to manipulate or, or to push people to give us what we want in that relationship. And so... Oaths and promises can be a subtle form of manipulation. But Jesus says, in his kingdom, we don't need oaths. We don't need promises. We can do away with these things if we commit to being people filled with his truth. 
we let our yes mean yes, if we let our no mean no, then we are entering into kingdom communication. Do your, do your words mean what you say? If so, that, that simple expression of honesty is enough. Right? Jesus desires us to be people who are full of the truth. Verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Which is another, not just of, of Israel's laws, this was actually a law that was pervasive in the ancient world. And it was good in that it, it limited revenge, limited people taking vindication into their own hands, right? If, if you were, uh, if you were, if, if, if someone offended you, if someone wounded you, if someone took something from you, the punishment that the law would mete out had to match the crime, not exceed it. And the basis of that law was designed, again, from people taking matters into their own hands and exacting revenge on someone else. But Jesus, again, goes further. Jesus says, but I say to you, when you are confronted with someone who seeks to bring you shame or who dishonors you or wounds you or places you in a vulnerable position. Jesus says, respond by being people full of kingdom meekness. That there's actually great power in that response. This is one that I think all of us struggle with understanding. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says that in teaching in this way, Jesus removes our need to get even with someone else by giving us a larger view of our own lives and particularly our place in our relationship with God in this world. Jesus is inviting us to see God and to see ourselves in his hands, in his kingdom. And when we do that, we're, we're able, Dallas Willard says, even to see the pitiful limitation of the one who is our enemy, who seeks to take away from us or to control us or to injure us. Jesus is inviting us to see ourselves as citizens in his kingdom. And he's already promised that that Kingdom is one that is coming and will one day inherit the fullness of the earth. And so we can hold fast to the dignity of what it means to belong to God. Right? That, that kind of identity is not possible under the, the letter of the law itself. Right? Laws, thank God, are designed to prevent the kind of injustice, the kind of abuse that Jesus is speaking of here. But Jesus says when they are overreached, when they are trampled on by evil persons, when you are powerless to change the law itself, Jesus assures us that the kingdom of heaven's power is on the side of the meek. It's no accident that these specific verses are the words that fueled things like the Montgomery bus boycott. 
This teaching is what gave rise to the civil rights movement. It's what informed Dr. King's vision of a beloved community and what grew out of it. Right? These words of Jesus' weren't just theoretical to those communities. They were vital. They were their marching orders. So that if your enemy takes your seat at the front of the bus and demands that you sit in the back, give them the whole bus. Right? Because the lust of the evildoer, the lust of one who seeks power by taking it away from someone else, is confronted when we exercise our freedom and our dignity to practice the kind of meekness Jesus speaks about here. Only when we truly believe there is a different kind of kingdom and a different way of being in the world, only when we're filled with that conviction right, can that kind of transformation take place. And that, that fullness, that invitation to live into a different way of seeing the world moves us into the last of Jesus' commands here in chapter 5. Look at verse 43. He says, Finally, you have heard it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Right? Which is essentially love your friends. Love those who are like you. Love those who are close to you. But resist your enemies. But when it comes to the part of the law concerning love, Jesus is at his most radical. Jesus removes every possible limit we could place on love itself. Verse 44, I say to you, be full of enemy love. Love your enemies. Pray for them. See them as children of your Father in heaven. Ironically, usually the way we decide who we're going to love is, is based on familial relationship, right? Who's part of my circle? Who's part of the community that I, I feel comfortable in, and therefore I'll love them, and if you're outside of that community, you're my enemy, or you're, you're to be kept at a distance. Instead, Jesus flips that on his head, and he says, the way you'll know what family you belong to is by the kind of love you practice. When you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, verse 44, you will be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus goes on to explain that we have evidence that this is actually how God loves his children as a father. He says every day God doesn't just send the sun to shine over the pastor's house and the people that go to church and then send crappy weather over the, the people that don't listen to him or don't come to church on a weekly basis or where the pagans reside. Right? God gives the gift of rain. God gives the gift of life. God gives the gift of creation and his countless blessings to everyone, even to those who curse him. We're to practice enemy love because God is full of that kind of love. And Jesus embodies that. He fulfills that. 
when the person of God is struck on the face by a Roman soldier, he turns the other cheek. When God himself has his own clothing taken away from him, when he's forced to carry his own cross as an instrument of execution, when God the Father is demanded the life of his own son by the children he created. All of this the Father gives to us with love. So Jesus says the goal of this teaching, the goal of of this fulfilling of the law and the filling up of all these things is so that we might be like our Father in heaven. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore. Be full of mercy. Be full of righteousness. Be full of love. In the same way, your heavenly Father is perfect. There is so much in Jesus' kingdom way that exposes my own deficit. There's so many of these commands where I feel empty instead of full of the things Jesus desires. But I don't think Jesus brings us this sermon to condemn us, to put a standard before us that we could never meet. I think the Sermon on the Mount is good news to us. It's gospel because this is Jesus' desire to fill us with his heart, with his way, with his righteousness, with his love. But we have, to, we have to want to be filled. We have to want to be transformed. Yeah, we want to have to be led in this new kingdom way and learn from the heart of our master. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is not given to us to expand the list of God's rules for for us as much as it is an invitation for our hearts to be expanded, to love what God loves and to love it in the way God loves it. Jesus invites us into relationship with him to learn this way of the kingdom.